Welcome to Scores and Pours. I'm Jill Mott. I'm Emily Reese. And today we're going to be talking about... B-sides. Get ready, Valdegay. Valdegay, Prokofiev, Barber, Rameau. <laughs> Everybody seems to know what B-sides means in music, but if we say, what are the B-sides of wine? What are the B-sides of classical music? Mm-hmm. What would people say? I imagine everybody would say something a little different. So we're here to set the record straight. <laughs> it's true. And I imagine so many people, if I were to say, what are the B-sides of wine? People would say, I don't know. Why don't you pour me a sip of whatever you think the B-sides of wine are? Exactly. Exactly. That's what we're going to do today. Um, it's possible that some of our music examples will have brief interruptions so that we can adhere to the best of our abilities to... Uh, fair use copyright. There will always be a full playlist on our website, so check out the artists. We pick these recordings pretty specifically. You know, we don't just pick any random recording of whatever tune we're talking about. So it'd be awesome if you'd support those artists. And we're grateful that they're out there making wonderful music. And of course, we encourage you too during those breaks to do what we do and have a sip of wine. Sip of wine. Or two. Listen to some good tunes. Hi, Jill. Hello. (laughs) And we're back. We're back. (laughs) This is some Prokofiev. This is one of the pieces we're going to talk about today. We thought we'd talk about it while we have a toast and then get back to it later, yeah? That sounds divine. All right. So we're choosing <laughs> like, with... my glass? <laughs> <laughs> we can't even find we our glasses and we're in and I don't second know where it is 42 yet. or something. Yep, yep. Um, well, here's two B-sides. B-sides. Cheers. That was a good one. Before we get to Prokofiev, let's talk about why we both chose B-sides because when we were formulating ideas for the podcast, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. we both said something similar to like off the beaten track or B-sides or things like that. Yeah. Um, So why do you think B-sides are important in classical music? Well, I I think you can think of B-sides in a lot of different ways. You can think of B-sides as like, you know, the lesser known tracks or the less popular tracks from a composer or an artist. I just basically thought of it, uh, I turned it into an intro to to classical music B-sides. Like if someone says hey, you need to learn about classical music. They're never going to put these three pieces on that album. But I think they're great pieces. Nice. So that's that's kind of how I thought of the B-sides thing. So, of course, that what we just heard is from Prokofiev's first symphony, and it's a very popular piece of music that Prokofiev wrote. So we would call that a Prokofiev A-side. But in terms of like learning about classical music, that's not usually where you would start. So we're cool. calling it a B-side. Well, that's exactly how... I approached the wine side of B-sides because it's really easy to, you know, if someone wanted to learn about wine, California wine, and we'll talk here more specifically red wine, you're not going to go to the grape Valdigay, for starters, for Valdigay. sure. Valdigay. Valdigay. And you may not go to Valdigay even as a, you know, third <laughs> or fourth or fifth thing to learn about. An F-side. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> It's sort of this, um, we'll get into it a little bit later, but it's a grape that made its way to California decades ago um, and is experiencing a resurgence 
yet at the same time, it's still very much relegated to a status that's not quite popular. There's actually more. Think of Bidet Makaska for those of you that live here in Minneapolis. Oh. Calhoun. Yeah. It, Calhoun. The lake. The lake is bigger than all of the Val de Gay in the United States. <laughs> really? Well, California. We'll, we'll use California. Yeah. So that's how rare Val de Gay is when we talk about B-sides. Well, I'm super interested to know more about it because I'm really super curious how that grape ended up in California, for one thing, and, like, why this great Val de Gay comes from California and not France. So maybe you'll tell me. We'll, we'll get there for sure. <laughs> um, well, what I, okay, I, what I loved, you, send me, you sent me links to listen to. I did. When you sent me the links, mm-hmm. I love the first piece, and I wasn't expecting it either. And you told me, right, there's no controlling the volume, right? Harpsichord just is? Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, there are ways you can manipulate the harpsichord to make it do some volume things, but generally speaking, when you're listening to harpsichord, what you hear is what you get. And that's why a composer of harpsichord music will add more fingers to make it louder, you know, just to thicken up the texture. Yeah. Do a lot of big block chords maybe, which you do hear a little bit in here. Um, and that's really only two people. That's only one person's hand. Yeah, that's Those just one two, person. That's crazy. Yeah, and see, they liked to do that in the Baroque era too. These were meant to be. These were meant to be hard to play. These weren't meant for beginners, and so they were meant to like show off. And so there's all this hand crossing where wow. hands are jumping over each other to give the illusion that there's more than one person playing. Yeah. So why this as a B side? Well, that's a good question because. I mean, you could really think of Jean-Philippe Rameau as just a B-side composer in general, really, because a lot of people don't know too much about Rameau. Um, he was born two years before Johann Sebastian Bach. He was born, uh, there was this really fertile period in uh, 1783 to 85-ish, where, 16, sorry, 1683, um, because Bach was born in 1685, and I think so was Domenico Scarlatti, and maybe one other super famous, still considered a master Baroque composer born in 1685, and then Rameau was born in 1683. And I love Rameau because he did not write very much music in general, and even then, when he did write, it's like he didn't start writing music till he was in his 40s. He wrote all his keyboard music in his 40s, which isn't even that much. And then in his 50s, he started writing opera, and after that, he just really didn't write anything else other and, than opera. And he lived a long time. He, and is that what he was known for was his operas pretty much? By then, yeah, okay. for sure by then. By the time he was in his 40s, he was actually really, uh, he was famous, quote unquote, for writing a treatise on music theory mm-hmm. and harmony and like helping people understand how to write music, quote unquote, or how to write in four parts or how to analyze music and the relationships between chords, you know, if we're in C major, then C major is tonic and F is the subdominant and and G would be the dominant and, and thusly. That's kind of, he just, so if you take 
theory, as an undergrad, you're going to learn the things that Rameau laid out in his treatise on harmony. Yeah, I just had had been doing some reading and found out there is a copy at our local library. It's just for <laughs> in use, you know, you in home use only. <laughs> oh yes, oh my gosh, I will do that. Yeah, um, but that it talks something about um, the deriving what we have for at that time classical music rhythms and harmonics and having a lot of the derivations come from nature. And I've, mm-hmm. I haven't read it enough to remotely speak to it. I just mm-hmm. found that fascinating because I'd heard that um, in polyphony music in the Republic of Georgia, in on the island of Corsica, etc., that a lot of those sounds and measures and tonality also resides in nature. So mm-hmm. I found it in, personally an interesting parallel. Sure. Yeah. So, no kidding. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Rameau was very much into the construction of and dispensation of knowledge of music. You know, he just he like even in in um, the 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 piece that this come this tune is called Les Cyclops, the Cyclops. I don't know anything about like Greek mythology or anything. It's fucking Cyclops. Like <laughs> I I don't know what if I looked it up, I'd just be regurgitating whatever I looked up online. So I decided not to look it up, but. I know it's a one-eyed dude, but the, in the in the beginning of this set of keyboard sonatas that Rameau wrote, he talks about how to play the harpsichord, which is funny. He like writes mm. this whole thing on how to play it, how to use your fingers, how to use your wrist, like where to sit, how high your hands should be or how low your hands should be, what what part of your body should be putting weight to the music, you know. So he was as much about yeah m- composing. And music as mm-hmm. he was in producing as he was just the actual technical aspects of yeah playing an instrument. Yeah, I think he was just really fascinated by everything, all, everything about music, you know, and he wanted people to know how to so do it right, awesome. which cracks me up too. You know, he was just like, this is how you do it. This is how you write music. Yeah. This is how you play the harpsichord. This is, wow. you know, but... It's like people don't really know what he was up to until he was in his late 30s, really. I mean, he just he, – and he didn't even tell his wife. Like his wife didn't even really know about his background. So he was oh. a really secretive fella. And um, anyway, so this this tune, Lacey Claps, comes from one of his keyboard suites. And it's what um, one of Remote's biographers calls a genre piece because it's called the Cyclops, right? It's not called – it's not named after a dance like Gavotte in A or yeah. Sarabond, you know. It's like meant to evoke an image or or a, a feeling about an inanimate object as opposed to being a dance. Huh. So that's kind of cool too. And he worked with, I, I, and correct me if I'm wrong, after he wrote these pieces, yeah. did he start to work with Voltaire? I don't even know. I feel like... How do you know? Where do you come up with this shit? I I don't know. I feel like I read that somewhere (laughs) a long time ago, and it may or may not be true, but something Mm. about, like, not being able to publish some of his music or have it performed because of the church and Voltaire and Dante's Inferno and all of that, and I don't know if that's... I don't either. I don't even know when Voltaire was alive. um, I want to say around the same time, because I think they were homies. Nice. Voltaire and remote. And I know, and I... (laughs) When I, when I, as I was listening to that piece, I was thinking about that. I was mm-hmm. thinking about that maybe mm-hmm. being a possibility. And then I was thinking about um, the fact that he, when I emailed you, I was like, 
Did you know that Ramos a Libra? <laughs> I'm a Libra. <laughs> so I was immediately like, I you trying. said you were a Taurus. Taurus rising. I don't know what that means. We'll go into that in a little bit. That'll, <laughs> that'll be three glasses of wine from now. <laughs> I, I, I like Ramo. I actually did find a quote from him that I really liked, okay. and I, not to get too philosophical too early, but um, <clears throat> he's quoted as saying, day by day, I'm acquiring more good taste, but I no longer have any genius. And it was late in his life that he said mm. it. So I thought that was fascinating. And actually, as much as it sounds like he was sort of um, belittling his age or what was happening to mm -hmm. him, I actually think that it's brilliant because it happens yeah. to... A lot of people. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Not to and get I, too off track. I think, too, especially for all artists struggle, whether it's, you know, music or visual art or anything, struggle with the changing times. And for Rameau to, to be born before Bach and outlive Bach, I mean, he really did see through through an era there toward the end of his life. Things were changing rapidly and music, and um, that would be really, you know, when you're 80, <laughs> living in the Baroque era, and you've made it to 80 or whatever the hell he meant, you know? Yeah, no kidding. You know, just like you're going to start learning a different style of music? I don't know. Yeah. So I wonder if that, you know, made him feel a little irrelevant as well. But yeah, just such an interesting interesting life to, to really not write that much keyboard music. He almost wrote zero chamber music, so he wrote almost nothing that we're talking about, like a duet, a trio, a quartet. And, and, and so he wrote like a handful of trios, and they're awesome. love his trios. They're so special because he just really had this way of like passing a line through. You know, you can hear it going from left hand to right hand in this solo keyboard piece, but you can also just hear him pass these lines um, from instrument to instrument in the trio and just gives a more important role to the keyboard and the viola da gamba and kind of takes pressure off the violinist and it's just nice. He just, he just he had a way, I feel like, and I, I wish I could be more specific about that because for me, Rameau is super expressive, um, like very, very expressive, and that's not how I would describe Bach, even though I feel that Bach is very expressive. You know what I mean? Like it's because Bach is my number one guy, and he always will be, but um, I just feel like Rameau just, I don't know. Like exudes, like it's like... It courses from the speakers kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. One of the other things that's cool about this particular piece is that it really gives you a taste of what French Baroque music is like because there's so much ornamentation, and ornamentation are like the little trills and things. Yeah, I was going to ask what the difference between French Baroque and, say, Italian Baroque. Mm -hmm. If you were listening to harpsichord version of either, mm -hmm. what would the trills you said, what else? 
Well, there's going to be ornamentation in all of Baroque music. That's mm-hmm. that's just a, one of the kind of hallmark characteristics of that era is if you hear keyboard music, you're going to hear lots of trills and mordants and, I mean, just all that. Well, here, he shows in his keyboard book, he shows you, and I'll put this online because he shows you what all the names are of the ornaments right there. And w- read what- some of those. Terminated trill. I want that to be on someone's personalized plate. <laughs> uh, curtailed note, truncated note, mordant and ascending apoggiatura. Nice. Yeah. Wow. So, so, but what distinguishes French from Italian Baroque? You said this listening to Ramon specifically this yeah. piece. Yeah, one of the things is what I was talking about earlier, how this is like a genre piece. This isn't a dance. This is like a show piece. And it is it is very showy. Not that there isn't showy Italian. You know, there's the Scarlatti. Scarlatti wrote, you know, 600 and some keyboard sonatas. They're all very short, but he still, Domenico Scarlatti wrote a ton. But it, it just, when I listen to Bach, Bach so often is two or three notes at a time. Okay, so when you're hearing, for instance, his two-part inventions, those have two parts. Okay. There's a left hand and a right hand, and almost never more than two notes at any given time playing simultaneously. His symphonias, or his three-part inventions, are three parts. There tends to be a little bit more busyness going on in the Rameau. Rameau uses like full chords a lot, really kind of embraces the full register of the keyboard. Not that Bach didn't, but... Just seems really thick. Like when I listen to it, it seems like there's just... yeah. A lot, yeah, in a really so, good way. Yeah, so like I think if you're going to get closer to Bach sounding busier like that, I think you would have to look into his like keyboard concertos, Bach's keyboard concertos, because first of all, a lot of the harpsichord music that we know of Bach or a lot of Bach's keyboard music that we know, that was all teaching tools. You know, like the well-tempered clavier or his two-part, three-part inventions. Those were teaching tools for his kids not so much the well-tempered clavier, but still there, there was a purpose to that book that wasn't about showing off. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Those weren't show-off pieces. You know, if we think of something big like Goldberg Variations, there's definitely show-off moments in that, but the nature of why that piece was written would almost prevent it from being virtuosic because it was, you know, to help someone fall asleep, right, basically. Yeah. So you don't want it to be all over the place. It's so cuz cuz when I say things like Rameau sounds more virtuosic yet Bach is really freaking hard to play. There's a cadence about it that yeah. and when I I 
the first time I listened to it in its entirety, um, that wasn't just on the radio or in passing. Yeah. I had, you know, I had the good headphones on. Yesterday morning, it was literally, you know, 827, and I put it on, and it was like <laughs> what you just heard maybe 10 minutes ago, yeah. and it was fantastic, but it was like, welcome to Sunday. Yeah. You, go, you know? <laughs> yeah. I also just generally love that recording of it because there, there can be a lot of there are a lot of like recordings out there of just bad harpsichord because mm-hmm. it's a weird instrument. It's hard to record well because it's just twangy. You know the the hammers just pluck the strings yeah. sharply, right? So it's it can be hard to get a really beautiful sound. But somehow these engineers and this instrument that this guy Trevor Pinnock played is just really beautiful. Just beautiful. Did you listen to that other track where he goes down to that low A? Did you yeah, get to that one I yet? Did. Yeah, I did. That's fantastic. Yeah. But I don't know. I love I love this tune. I love the pounding bass. There's that pounding bass. Yep. It's almost like stride piano, you yep. know, if you think of like Scott Joplin or something. It's, mm-hmm. And it really is if you, even if you look at the score, which looks so much easier than it actually is. Um, I mean, because doesn't that look like you'd just feel, you'd be like, I could play that. But then it goes by at like breakneck Mach 12 speed. Isn't that crazy? Wow. Yeah, because it looks, Do it does look somewhat it? simple. Yes, I would love that. So great. So great. And I love that we just looked at the sheet music for the whole song. (laughs) It was fantastic. Yeah, but did you notice those big chords that he would use to just create volume and, yeah. And you're right about the the sheet music looking. It looks so easy. Like if someone handed that to me, I'd be like, oh, that's going to be pretty easy. (laughs) But but I'd be like, oh, one, two, three, four. Yeah. Yeah. Not two, two time and at uh, molto allegro or molto allegre or whatever. So funny. Yeah. Anyway, I love Rameau. Uh, Rameau didn't really get a revival till the 20th century. It's interesting. He was kind of just a little bit forgotten about, but a lot of Baroque opera was kind of revived in the 20th century that had been kind of forgotten about. And so he got he got a little bit more attention then, and now he's back, which is great. recording is pretty special is because Trevor Pinnock, British fella, in the 70s, Trevor Pinnock was one of the guys and gals who started 
trying to play on Baroque instruments, which was really hard back then because the instruments, are even even Baroque instruments that are made now are better than the, the ones they had lying around in the 70s, you know, because now they're like, they're like luthiers who are like into it yep. and crafting these Baroque instruments, whatever. But, um, but Trevor Pinnock was really into that. So he's like a Baroque dude, you know, he's, he's run a lot of what, what are called early music ensembles and also just happens to be a really great harpsichordist and a lot of times plays harpsichord in these ensembles. And he got the chance to go visit this collection of harpsichords at, I think, the University of Edinburgh. And they let him play this really special instrument that was built in the year that Romo died in 1764. And they just did everything. And so so basically when Trevor Pinnock recorded this album, which is called Lacey Clops, um, he picked like all his favorite remote keyboard music. So was this recorded on that harpsichord? Yes. Oh, so this was recorded on okay. the instrument that was made in 1764. It was, I think, yeah, it was modified in the 1780s and then eventually restored so that sure yeah but it basically like lives behind lock and key in this special collection cool. and it's just such a beautiful instrument god it's got to be such and a just joy recorded to so well yeah yeah can you imagine just like hey do you want to come play this badass harpsichord that's 300 400 years old like no So let's take a break from Rameau, because I have some questions about Val de Gay. Yes. Cheers to Val de Gay. Yeah. And the, those are the questions that I brought up earlier, how, like, this this wine is a French word, but we're drinking wine from California that used to be called something else, but then the government said you can't call it that anymore, and now it's called this. Well, so... To back up, well, we'll talk about government in a second. Yeah. So Valdiguet is a really fun grape that um, hails from southern France in and around the Languedoc, maybe Tarn, maybe Provence. And Valdiguet has never really that we know of been made in a commercial, like single varietal wine in France. It's usually in a blend, a field blend, and they'll toss it in to make, you know, as you can tell, it's got like this beautiful, pretty deep yes. color, um, kind of purplish, dark pink color. And it usually, it obviously, it gives color, it gives grapey, fruity nature to a, a blend that could be austere. Um, I think a couple of weeks ago, you and I tasted Cunoise on its own. Yeah. Um, and Cunoise is is sort of like kind of a, can be a, a sparse scrape in many areas. Like it's got a lot of structure, not a lot of stuffing. And in comes Valdigue and fleshes out that topic along with Grenache and maybe some other grapes. Well, fast forward uh, some centuries, we know that the first mention of Valdigue was around, the, I think, the 18 mid-1800s or so. And around the time of prohibition, give or take, it came over to California and was planted for the same reasons, because it was good in blends. Mm -hmm. um, it is somewhat resistant to powdery mildew. Um, it yields well, so it you know produces a lot of fruit. Like, um, I'm, I don't mean to interrupt, but every single place I looked up to read about Valdegay was like, 
resistant to powdery mildew. So that's oh, like okay. it's <laughs> selling. Like, it's like <laughs> replant this, please. <laughs> yep. And so, and uh, California viticulturists were on board. They planted it, and they they called it um, Napa Gamay because it tasted like. A, a lot like Gamay. It was fruity. It was juicy. Um, did they know then that it wasn't, though? Well, I think some people did and okay. some people didn't. Okay. You know, and then fast forward however many decades and it kind of gets lost in translation and it just now has become Napa Gamay. Mm-hmm. Everybody calls it that, whether they're blending it or not. And even now, when you can still find Napa Gamay on labels, it's technically actually, it's not illegal. When mm-hmm. you look to find up um, certain statistics about it online and you're looking at like spreadsheets from the AVAs, specific AVAs, American viticultural areas within California like Napa Valley or Sonoma County, et cetera, they actually have it listed under Gamay and then it says in parentheses Napa. So oh. anybody reading that that didn't know about Valdigue would be completely confused. Right. Like why is it, is that only Napa Valley? Why are we calling it Napa yeah. even though... It could be somewhere else. So in, I think it was the 1980s that a fella actually did some testing and found out, like, this is Valdigay. And people started to just very recently, in the last maybe decade or so, um, maybe even sooner than that, I saw my first Valdigay on a label maybe six years ago. And when I tasted it, you know, it was it was very much like you mentioned right away. You're like, mm-hmm. "Wow, it's grapey." Yeah, that's ex- that was maybe verbatim. Like what I should look, grapes. Yeah, I should yeah. look back on my notes because I probably wrote that same thing. It's <laughs> yeah. grapey and fruity and just so easy to drink. Mm-hmm. Um, so today, when we're talking about B sides, whenever I think about B sides, of course, the first thing I think of is music, and I think about either the music that didn't fit on an album, like a song that a track that didn't fit on a full-length album. Sure, yeah. Or it stylistically or something, it just didn't belong with the hit, yeah. so it went on the, the B-side. Yeah. And I feel like yet people that are really, really into a certain artist, composer, et cetera, they're like really into the B-sides mm-hmm. um, because you have to dig for them. And, yeah, and then at right. The, and at the same time, B-sides and music, if I attach that to wine... B-sides and wine tend to be like they have their own movement that's just about to happen. So obviously mm-hmm. Valdegay in California is a thing now. It's fairly famous. In Minnesota, here where we are, um, some people know about Valdegay, some don't. But it's at a movement, I think, where – or at a point in a movement where Valdegay is to wine. It's like making wine fun again. Like, nice. Like we can – we can talk about the serious aspects of this Valdigay mm-hmm. that we're drinking, but in the end, let's just crush it and drink some <laughs> and watch, uh, listen to some classical music, right? Um, yeah. It's just fun to drink. And Cali- California right now, I think there are a lot of serious winemakers that really know their stuff. They're great, even natural winemakers that are saying, you know, let's just make really great quality, fun wine. Let's yeah. make wines that we want to quaff, that we want to drink a lot of. Yeah. Um, and that is right now around the world, a movement for wine. It's called glu-glu. People wine, make wines that are like glu-glu to like chug-chug. Um, <laughs> Vin de Soif, like wines that you just tip back. And mm-hmm. Valdigay as a B-side is sort of representative, I think, of yes, a great quality, can be a great quality, great, mm-hmm. but of a movement, which is 
really fun. One of the things I really like about drinking it is it doesn't make me thirsty like some red wine does. Ah, yeah, the tannins. So Mm -hmm. um, the grapes themselves, the bunches are pretty big, and the berries themselves are quite big as well. Um, So you've got a lot more juice to skin ratio. Okay. So the tannins, unless they macerate the heck out of it, like soaking it with the skins, is going to be a lower tannin grape than, say, a Cabernet, that the berries are a little smaller, the skins are thicker. Okay. So they'll give more tannin. Tannins reside in the skins and the pips. Um, And this is only like a brief maceration, like seven days. Okay. Sometimes macerations can be really lengthy, but it's hard to say on average, but I'll just throw a term out there. I'm sure I'm going to get slayed for it. But, you know, like, oh, two weeks to three weeks for red wine is not uncommon. Okay. And so for this to be like juicy seven-day maceration, (laughs) it happens in concrete too, which is like- Oh, interesting. Maintains the freshness. It allows for the the grape to breathe a little bit, but, and it's open top, but there's a lot of freshness. Open top. Yep. They just let it go, let it ferment. All the great microbiological excitement that's in that cellar is is obviously helping the wine uh, ferment, wow. and then um, he moves it over to oak for just a really short amount of time, a few you know handful of months, and it's just mm-hmm. like lip smacking, which yeah, is, which is great. It really is, and and I mean just to like hammer back home on the grapiness of it, it it really does remind me of like of actually of grape juice. I get that aftertaste that it's like almost the same aftertaste I had from communion when I was a kid. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's in, crazy. In like a good way, right? Yeah, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And when people ask me to recommend whether it's like uh, on a restaurant floor or whether it's at, at the wine shop I work at at Henry and Son, and they ask for something, you know, like I want a red wine or, you know, I – I'm not, I drink white wine, but I want to drink a red because I'm eating something or have friends yeah. that like red Like Valdigue is such a go-to because yeah. there's nothing complicated about it, yet it's definitely going to satisfy someone that is a little bit more nerdy about what they're drinking because mm-hmm. they probably will never have heard of it. Yeah. And this comes from a really cool vineyard that um, right now the vines are over 40 years old, which for Valdigue is, um, I guess it's common and uncommon. It's not really being heavily planted. I mean, there's, like I said, there's less Napa Gamay, there's less Valdigue than there is surface area of, of Bidet Makaska Lake. <laughs> um, so, but that said, it's an all organic, sustainably farmed vineyard. The sandy loam soils kind of make, they make for granted how it's, how it's crafted has created this as well. But sandy loam soils Think of loam, it's alluvial, it's wet. You I don't think know of, what loam is. So it's a combination of like sand, silt, clay. Okay. Um, it's alluvial from from some sort of alluvial deposit from times yeah. past. Okay. And when you think of that and sandstone, there's just like nothing coarse about that. There's nothing overly alkaline about it. There's nothing overly acidic about it. And so you just are left with usually this smooth, like, Pl- slightly plump but smooth flowing palate. Last night I was tasting a wine, um, a Chardonnay from a similar area actually in the Santa Cruz Mountains. I didn't know it at the time, but I was like, whoa, sandy loam soils. You could just like taste it. And I like Googled and I was like, in fact it is, yes. Um, but it, yeah, so I think with the soils, the way this is made makes for a really good B-side, which hopefully yeah. will go well with the rest of the B-sides you've selected. Yeah. 
I have more questions, but shall we Please. listen to some music or shall let's we wind it. it up? Yeah, let's let's listen to some music. I'm in the mood. Okay. Um, would you like to hear schmaltzy romantic or neoclassical uh, early? Let's, let's schmaltzy in, schmaltz in, the, in the interest of, you know, last last time we were talking about what makes a symphony a symphony and yeah. we're like fast, slow, fast, fast. Or, yeah. You know, let's get the slow in the middle, calm down yep. and finish on like a... Poppy. Peppy. Yeah. Happiness. Yeah. yeah. So uh, again, if if I'm I'm gonna talk to you now about Samuel Barber, who was American composer in the 20th century. And I'm gonna talk to you about his violin concerto, which this is another example of if you were to talk about Samuel Barber A sides, this would definitely be one of them. Um, after his adagio for strings, which uh, you'd may not know by name, but if you've never heard it, I don't know how you're a human <laughs> it's in everything <laughs> but Barber's violin concerto the story of how this got written is really amazing for one thing but but also just talking about a violin concerto the word concerto means Someone is on a stage playing a solo with a full orchestra. So it's not a sonata. Sonata is like a sol- like a keyboard sonata would be just a keyboard player, or a violin sonata would be a violin plus a piano player. Trombone sonata, trombone plus piano. Trombone concerto, trombone plus orchestra. Okay. Okay? So violin concerto, no shortage of these in the world because there's no shortage of diva violinists out there who want to show off how, how, how really virtuosic and amazing they are, right? And that's what I love about the first movement of the Samuel Barber is that there really isn't a lot of that in this, in this first movement of this concerto. And that's one of the reasons why the writing of it was so complicated because of the person who asked him to write it for him wanted something more virtuosic and, and more showy. But this... This violin concerto is just so pretty. It's so pretty. And it's just like this sweeping, romantic, ah, it's just beautiful. Let's just listen to some of it. You and I had a conversation about how I thought this morning I, I texted Emily saying, gosh, I'm, I'm listening to this and it feels so dramatic. Like it feels very, <laughs> um, 
maybe like Barbara was. I don't know, of course. But um, when I heard it, the first thing I wondered was I, I Googled him. Yeah. Because I wanted to know more about his early life because it sounds very smooth, very pampered, you know? Mm-hmm. So like it, it sounds there's no, like there's no posh strife. to you. Yeah, there's it no sounds, strife there's in no his strife. in his music. You know, there's well, like I mean, there's drama and there's there's pitfalls and there's there's mm-hmm. height. But you don't hear like turmoil like you might in Beethoven. Are you saying? Like, or yeah, like like, in, str- like struggle, struggle. Like you know, someone who has I experienced see. struggle. Sometimes that comes out in their music. Mm-hmm. And you know, I know that he was an educated young man um, all Mm -hmm. the way up through his life. So I just wondered if that youth drew any correlations. Have you ever heard that as a theory about why his music is the way it is? I haven't. I honestly haven't. But, I mean, you know, he went to Curtis Institute when he was 14. So, I mean, he he was in a conservatory. (laughs) Cheersing with a microphone, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) He was in a conservatory by the time he was 14 years old, which, you know, I mean, that's... That it, that happens now t- too. You know mm-hmm. there are tweeners and teens that are at Juilliard and probably Curtis. You know, I mean mm-hmm. that that's not too terribly uncommon, but that's just a weird place to be. You know, yeah, I, w- I would think. But um, that's actually how he met the violin player that he was supposed to write this for. Oh, okay. Um, uh, they graduated in the same year. Um. And and that whole commission process just went really wrong because that violin teacher, that violin player, um, Bucelli, I think his name was Bucelli. I keep putting this in a different place every time. Yeah, I think you're. I think you're right. Bucelli sounds. Bucelli, right. yeah. And so he wrote. Bucelli wanted him to write this violin concerto, and Barbara's like, "Definitely, I'll do it." Actually, it goes a little differently than that. A businessman in Philadelphia, right? So we're rewind. That's the guy who commissioned Barber to write the piece for Buscelli. That's how that went. Okay. And so Buscelli, uh, Barbara writes the first two movements. Buscelli loves them both, mm-hmm. shows them to his teacher who hated it. And his teacher was the one who said, if I perform this on stage, it would damage my reputation because it's not hard enough. Well, and didn't they think the third movement, the what ended up being the, I have it written here, the presto, yeah, the was finale. like not complicated enough yeah. and was disjointed from the first two pieces anyway, or the first two movements anyway. Yeah, well, and it still is, I think. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a really interesting piece when you listen to it as a whole, the first, second, and third movement, and that's, you know, we're not going to do that. You are welcome to explore that on your own, but they're very, the second and third movement are very different from the first movement. Very different, especially that third movement kind of sticks out, but... um you know, I mean, it, it just ended up that Barbara and Buscelli just decided to forget about it, and they still were friends. They were pals for the rest of their life. There weren't any hard feelings or anything, but it was just weird how this violin teacher kind of hone, honed his way in there and ruined everything, really. Mm. I mean, what would Barbara have written otherwise? You know, what, 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 what had he written that he ended up throwing out and redoing? Like, I'd love to hear that. Yeah. I want to hear that, you know? Well, so this was – I thought that he – wasn't there something that after he wrote the first and second movements mm-hmm. and there there was this scuffle, mm-hmm. he wrote the third movement anyway, and even though uh, the teacher wanted him to rewrite it, the third movement for sure, but the yeah. first and second perhaps, didn't Barber, I thought he didn't rewrite it, so he Correct. did. No, okay. he, di- he didn't. Okay. He didn't. He rewrote, he redid the third movement 
Gotcha. Maybe change some stuff in the second movement. Okay. I think he maybe changed some stuff in the first movement as well after that first meeting, but okay. not not like a drastic rewrite or anything like that. Huh. But I mean, just imagine like, you know, and and you listen to some violin concerti and they are annoying because they're just like, it's like virtuoso vomit. You know, yeah. you're just like, oh, God. It's like, really, I know you have fast fingers. I know that I should be impressed by your triple stops and stuff. But I mean, let's just, let's just write some music. You know, you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. And I feel like, Barber accomplished that in the first movement. You know, he wrote just a beautiful piece of music to show off the absolutely gorgeous lyrical qualities of a violin. Mm-hmm. And the the recording we were listening to right there is Gil Shaham, who I think has one of the just the warmest, most vibrant sounds on a violin. It's never to me shrilly. It's just even when he's way up in the upper register, it's just this warmth to it, and he just he just plays it really great. So yeah, just one of those, you know, there are a lot of pieces of music that have just interesting stories on how they got written, and I mean, that's part of the fun in all of it, but um, but yeah, that teacher, man, saying he would screwed damage it, his reputation, because like, seriously, like, it's going to damage his reputation to perform it, because it's not technical you wonder enough. If he was, you wonder if he was jealous that it wasn't, you know, it was commissioned for his right. student to play, and maybe not yeah. for him to play, Because you know what the teacher's name was? Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Um, Also, I don't want to leave out that, um, you know, Gil Shaham has been around for a long time, and he's just such a wonderful player, and there's a really great video of him on YouTube doing it as well, doing it at the proms. Have you ever heard of the proms? Mm -hmm. Yeah, in the UK, this big, huge, giant, well, in London, in this big, giant classical music festival um, and he's doing it at Royal Albert Hall, which is a really fun, fun thing to see. And I don't know. There's... If anybody's not doing anything in May, you can go see him in Monaco. I checked it out this morning because I was that <laughs> obsessed with listening to his various pieces and his obviously um, his talent. And so you can go and um, he see comes him here in from Monaco time to time. in May. Yeah, yeah. I interviewed him here for Minnesota Orchestra once. Yeah, it's good to know. Like nicest fella. Yeah. Really Cross nice. my fingers. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, he probably hasn't been back since then, so we probably will make the rounds again soon. We'll invite him to drink Valdigay. can be on our <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Cross my fingers. <laughs> that piece and and the you know last week we were talking about uh, how first movements of big orchestral pieces are often in this special form and that's how this piece is laid out more or less and the, the return to that main theme from the beginning is just awesome with all this like amazing timpani and it's just this really cool should we hear it 
there's piano in this. Uh, Barber asked for a piano to play along with the orchestra. And, you know, that's an always kind of a, that's how it always was in the Baroque era, right? There was always a harpsichord around, always. And then they kind of got away from that. And then every once in a while there'd be a keyboard part in an orchestral piece. And I just, I really like that there's piano in this. And he, it's not like he revived that or anything. I mean, it just, he just wanted a piano in this. And there are a couple of moments where just the texture of the piano stands out in a really great way. And that was one of those moments that happens right between the first theme and the second theme of the exposition. And we're just going to back it up just a little bit because the second theme, then the clarinet starts and the clarinet plays the second theme. And then Gil Shaham comes in and like varies the second theme. And it's just, it's just a really cool, cool part. cool that piano was Mm -hmm. yeah the piano is really cool addition to that texture yeah no it's just I just love that I love that tune you know and I don't know came across it and thought more people should know that tune yeah you know that's a great beautiful it's schmaltzy but I kind of just want to like run through a field dancing and hugging someone or something or down a really snowy street. <laughs> so let me let me ask you this. Yeah. How many do you think that if you were to hear that on a local classical station, yeah. would you hear one of the three movements likely or would you hear it together because I know it's a rather it's uh, a longer it's a longer piece. That is such a good question. I mean, do people yeah. have the attention spans nowadays to sit through 20ish not during drive times. Commercial, yeah. I was not say. during drive times. Yeah. See, this okay. is that's that's just like a basic radio one hundred and one like philosophy. Like you don't play a twenty minute song in the morning, whether it's Leonard Skinner mm-hmm. or you know Samuel Barber. You know, you'd play a movement of it. But in, mid- that, in midday or in the evening session, say, is that something that evening uh, for sure? Okay. Yeah, they'd play the whole thing for sure. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Definitely. Yeah. Because I thought it was. What's fascinating is there may be a movement that I personally prefer. Yeah. But especially knowing the history, the piece makes more sense, the three of them together. Yes. And I can listen to the third and be yep. like, ooh, I'm not really sure that was the right choice. Who am I to say that, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. But like just from what I've read, I understand why people say that. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh, but it it makes the story, it's sort of like, I don't know, it, it it could be about um, like when a wine tastes like some people uh, don't prefer when grapes are harvested right around times of the rain because the okay. wine can taste quote-unquote dilute, which huh. in a pejorative sense it has maybe less grip, less overall uh, compact flavor, okay. less ageability, yeah. so many things to say. But why is that not cool? Why, if you can taste the fact that a farmer or a winemaker decided to harvest right after or before the rain, that maybe wasn't their objective, but that's what happened. Right. Because that's maybe the only time that they could afford work, get, get you know, hands in the vineyard, et cetera. And that's what, that's what we have. Mm-hmm. So 
why not embrace the fact that we can taste that and it's a story? Mm-hmm. And I don't know. So that's I, when I listened to the three movements together, I really enjoyed the third movement for that reason that it's part of the story. Yep. Yeah. No, it's definitely part of the story. Um, I was really curious if they make Valdegay in France anymore. Um, that I know of a single varietal. I, I'm digging back in my memory bank and I can't say I've ever tasted one. Wow. I've tasted it in blends and I've tasted it, uh, you know. In France, yeah. 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 But I've never tasted a single varietal and especially selling for what they sell for now mm-hmm. in the States. They hover right around the mid to high 20s okay. for a Valdigay, you know, that's chipping in on like Pinot Noir territory, you know? I just love that when you said the word, it made you smile. You're like, for a Valdigay. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's just super fun. And especially when you look at like, if you, you know, Google Valdigay or put it on your, um, your search, you'll find that um, some people talk about it as like an ordinary grape. Hmm. You know, because it doesn't have, whether it doesn't have tannin or doesn't have good. a lot of acidity or, yeah, good. You know, it's <laughs> yeah, just, good. Um, it's, it's like the next composer that we're going to talk about. Oh. Who I think, correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. I don't want to necessarily segue if we're not ready. Oh, yeah. Well. But I love weird time, um, time signatures, mm-hmm, right? And mm-hmm. I, Adore oddball keys, and I th- yeah. think Prokofiev liked them right oh, yeah. on and off. Yep. And so when we think about B sides and kind of little off kilter yeah. qualities, when I was tasting it, I also thought how kind of I really hesitate to say this, but like Mozart like the symphony we listened to is like very like zippy and poppy, and yep. I was like, wow, this is. <laughs> This is just like Valdigay, I was telling you when we were as we were opening the wine earlier, um, which was which was really fun. So I can't wait to yeah. dive into his life and yeah stuff. So I when I said that this um, wine, I talked about it being from um, organic grapes, and I was talking yes. about the soil, but I didn't say it's from Napa Valley. Um, it's grown in a quite a few different areas in and around or in California, but Napa, Santa Cruz Mountains, they tend to be. Uh, the area where we see a little bit more Valdigui, we see it in Mendocino. Um, it's kind of sprinkled around. We rarely see it in the south in like Paso Robles, and that may be because the warmer it gets, it's already grapey and plump. Yeah. So, you know, give it a give it a hot day um, <laughs> and a hamburger, and it's mm-hmm. in some water, and it's just going to get plumper. Mm-hmm. Um, so it does well um, in the north for sure. Nice. So. I just love how it doesn't make me thirstier. That's just what I always expect out of a red wine. Now, granted, I've only been hanging out with you for a few months, so I I probably will learn that there are a lot of wine, red wines that don't make me thirstier. Well, but I hate that. So I trifled with bringing uh, two wines today, mm-hmm. and to sort of to to counter what we did last week. We shoved three wines and a whole <laughs> lot of substance into one yeah. podcast, which was incredible. Yeah. Um, I thought to do something simpler and bring one wine. And I'm, I'm still going back and forth whether I should have brought a second uh, that was done in a style that utilizes carbonic maceration, which I forwarded you a little info and you said, yes. wow, the grape ferments inside itself. That's insane. <laughs> it is. Um, and it's a really cool technique. It's, it's technically called... Um, 
intracellular fermentation. And what that does is <laughs> intracellular. It, correct. Intra. Yeah. Intra. Yep. Yeah. Um, and what that does is it it allows for the grape to be kind of it lowers tannin, it lowers acidity, um, it heightens certain aromatic compounds, and you are left with like a little bit more of a playful side of the grape. And because Valdigay is already playful, I thought, why do we need to have playful and then just straight go to kindergarten? Like, because it's so fun. It's like there's nothing serious usually about carbonic macerated Valdigay. It's just straight up. I mean, we'd be, the bottle would be like gone. Wow. And we'd be calling hums to deliver us some more Valdigay or something. Um, but it's a fun grape. Um, and when things are done in a carbonic macerated style, especially with Valdigay, it's going to not make you thirsty, but uh, that may be it. That may be another topic for uh, another podcast. Wines that don't make you thirsty. Yes. Welcome to carbonic maceration. <laughs> no kidding. You never know. How do you get a grape to ferment inside itself as opposed to like, do you just not break it open or? Um, correct. Yeah. So you can have fully carbonic maceration or yeah. full on. Um, you can have partial carbonic and well, how that entails is in order to call it carbonic maceration, there needs to be a portion of the grapes that are fermenting without contact to oxygen. So they're having, as opposed to an aerobic fermentation, they're having an anaerobic fermentation. Okay. So they're either, they've closed off a vat, they've sucked all the um, O2 out, mm -hmm. and the and the and you're left with either packeted yeasts or natural yeasts that are on the grape skins mm -hmm. to allow for the fermentation to commence. And weight on the top of the bunches will press down the bunches that are on the bottom. They'll okay. cause a, a little breakage to happen, and okay. there's a little bit of liquid. And then those that will kind of spur the fermentation. Yeah. And you'll have either grapes fermenting Technically, in the absence of oxygen, but not under juice, and that can right. be carbonic maceration if they've okay. taken the air out. But in a case like this, he has, or maybe maybe this is a bad example, but um, in in different Valdigues, what they can do is they can toss whole clusters all in a vat. Maybe they don't close it and take the air out. Maybe they just leave it what we call open top, exposed mm -hmm. to the elements. Mm -hmm. And the weight of some of the grapes on the top will crush the grapes on the bottom. Maybe they're even adding juice in there too um, from already crushed grapes. But the grapes that are whole cluster and under grape must, okay. those are technically not exposed to air. So right. those so those are fermenting within themselves. Okay. Whereas the other grapes on the top, you know, whether they're in contact with some, you know, some just some wet musts around, you know, crushed grapes, et cetera. Those would be going through a, a regular fermentation. Cool. Sorry, very long-winded. No, I I appreciate the explanation because that stuff. I mean, it's just like any new thing you become interested in, whether it's cars or wine. It's like you you start to peel back the first part of the onion skin, and then you're like. Holy shit, there's 7,000 more layers just on this one onion. And hopefully it makes you cry each yeah. time because it's so good. <laughs> and what's fun, exactly. about, what's fun about carbonic maceration is that a lot of winemakers now are using it for even like a Cabernet or a blend or something partially, even yeah. if it's 10%, because it just adds an element. It's like, it's like the class clown. 
You know, it, yeah. it just lightens up algebra, you know? <laughs> and carbonic maceration makes just, can, can make elements of a really serious wine mm-hmm. really pretty and really fun. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Well, I think it's delicious for sure. I'm glad you like it. Yeah. No, it's amazing. Uh, Prokofiev? Should we talk about? Let's do it. I'm excited. Russians. Prokofiev. You know, Prokofiev lived uh, in the early 20th century when Lenin and Stalin were around, which was problematic for all Russian artists, Soviet artists. You know, a lot of them left Russia, like Prokofiev left for a while. He ended up going back, uh, which was a really big mistake. But um, uh, someone like, like Shostakovich never left. Stravinsky left and never went back. Um, you know, it was a really difficult time to be an artist in Russia. And I really only know about the composers. I don't know about all the other arts, you know. Yeah. I'm sure it was a nightmare for them too. Prokofiev did a lot of travel, right? He was kind of, was he bouncing around he did. in the States and in it, other parts of Western Europe? And- yeah, he, he left Russia and then uh, was, I think, in Germany for a, for a time. He might have done like a Japan tour, um, maybe France. I know Stravinsky obviously spent a ton of time in, in France. Um, and then he did end up in the U.S. and was there for a while, but Stalin wanted him back. You know, he wanted, yeah. you're, you're Russian. You should make Russian art, you know, just this... Over the top nationalism. nationalism. Okay. And, you know, they wooed him. They wooed him. And Stalin probably cared less than some of the other people in the government, but but they wooed him back with promises of like a safe place to live and we'll take care of your family and money and we'll feed you. You you don't Did you they do that? For a little bit. Okay. For about a year, maybe. Oh, that's it. Yeah. Wow. And he and Prokofiev and his wife were having issues, and um, he didn't really want to be with her anymore, but she couldn't leave Russia. They wouldn't let her leave. And um, when, well, and that was the other thing, too, is when he first got to Russia, one of the things they said he could do is travel as much as he wanted. You can leave, you can go between borders freely if you want to do a European tour, do it. You want to go to the U.S., do it. And they let him do that for a little while, too, but then... All of that kind of slowly started getting shut down. And, you know, when he and his wife kind of separated for good, she kept trying to get out of the country. And when officials learned about that, they just threw her in the gulag for eight years. They fucking threw her in the gulag for eight years. Oh, my gosh. And while she was there, I think it was while she was, maybe not now, I need to look at the timeline. But, you know, basically she heard through the grapevine that Prokofiev had died. And he actually died the same day Stalin died. And so his funeral was like, you know, not, it was like barely noticed because, yeah, just sad, super sad situation. But Prokofiev's music is awesome. (laughs) Whether or not he was a dick to his wife, I can't really say. But let's just listen to it and then we can talk about it because I feel like I'm talking too much. Are we going to allegro? Are we going to start at the beginning? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was really just going to talk about the first movement, but we can talk about more of them. Gosh, so right during World War I, he was writing this. That's crazy. 
Yeah. Yeah. So hippity hoppity for mid war. <laughs> <laughs> So why did you choose why did you choose him as a member of our B-side clan? Well, first of all, I love showing people 20th century music that doesn't sound like what you might think you would hear in 20th century classical music, you know? Mm-hmm. Because the less tonal, more difficult to listen to aspects of 20th century music usually get all the attention you know the atonal stuff the serial music maybe even you know just noise bands and and you know just kind of the disassembling of music kind of gets highlighted a lot in the 20th century because that's exactly what happened but even then there were all these composers who were because now we're in you know the romantic era is all but over by this point that Prokofiev's writing But I would never call Prokofiev a romantic composer or even a late romantic or a post-romantic because he went through a lot of phases too. But but this is just like a handful of composers in the early 20th century who were fascinated with the classical era when Haydn and Mozart were alive. And they were fascinated by also Baroque forms. So it wasn't just music from the classical era – but there were also forms from the Baroque era that these, you know, quote-unquote modern composers were really interested in. And they're like, and in Prokofiev's head, he's like, well, Haydn wrote, you know, 107 symphonies. Haydn, basically the father of the symphony. Who knows if that's how he was thought of when Prokofiev was writing this? Who knows? Mm-hmm. But certainly Haydn's legacy was well known, you know, as a writer of many symphonies. And Prokofiev was like, if Haydn were alive... Right now, when I'm alive, this is what his music would sound like. And that's what it was. It wasn't Prokofiev imitating Haydn in his in Prokofiev's head. Mm-hmm. It's not Prokofiev imitating Haydn or paying tribute to Haydn. It's Prokofiev trying to be Haydn in this era with modern instruments and modern harmony. And so that's how he kind of approached this. And the first movement then, and the second, you know, all of that follows a very Haydn form. Fast, slow, fast, fast. And the slow movement isn't really that slow. Yeah. But it's still fast, slow, fast, fast. He throws a dance in there. There's a gavotte. Mm-hmm. You know? And it's just fun. It's just... So what about when you... When I listen to the music, I do think it sounds for being a 20th century... It was written in the 20th century to think about the fact that it... It doesn't sound like it was. You yeah. know, you're, you're alluding to Haydn, et cetera, Mozart. Yeah. And I'm I'm wondering, I think about the Russian landscape and how... You think of the Russian what? I, I like it harkens to me. I think about the Russian landscape and just yeah. how how far removed they were from like a modern yeah. times, you know? Yeah. And I wonder when I... And just comparing because we just listened to Barber... Yeah. Like it sounds more like 
it sounds, Barber sounds newer and not to necessarily yeah. compare them, but I couldn't help it just thinking of if he grew up in what present day Ukraine, the time Soviet Russia, you know, things were just already rewound, you yeah, know, to yeah. where yeah. they were living a lifestyle that a lot of times as Americans now, we like, we mm -hmm. romanticize that sort of like mm -hmm. pastoral life, et cetera. Yeah. And so I wonder if. But not necessarily in the music. Like, they still all had access to everything that was happening music musically, you know, like his, I think, mom was a musician and, and you know, they they knew what was going on music-wise. Yeah. Even if they were, you know, milking their own cows or whatnot. Yeah. They they still, you know, were up on, up on that. I you think. wonder if their appreciation for, like, obviously this is very fresh and it sounds new. Yeah. But it's there's an appreciation, there's an homage to the old. Yes, you know. Whereas yeah. you listen to Barber, and it sounds very new-ish, like yeah. with this sort of "Look at me, here I am." Yeah, I, I don't know. It's also you know the Barber much bigger orchestra, more in, way more instruments. Okay, I mean if we think about you know what Prokofiev scored this for is is a, a classical sized orchestra. Still bigger than what Haydn probably had access to most of the time. Okay. But, you know, we're talking about, you know, your string section, violin, viola, cello, bass. But then just, you know, a couple of flutes, a couple of oboes, a couple of clarinets, a couple of trumpets, a couple of horns. You know what I mean? Not, not overdoing it. And, you know, if we wanted to compare to, like, you know, the last symphony that Mahler wrote, which was written before... Prokofiev's classical symphony. I mean, Mahler was dead by the time Prokofiev wrote this, but, you know, like that tune has more brass players in it than probably what Stravinsky or Prokofiev... Did I say Stravinsky a second ago? Instead no. of Prokofiev? Okay. No, Prokofiev. Okay, good. Oof. Um, <laughs> no, the... the uh, the orchestra that, you know, like a Mahler orchestra or a Wagner orchestra that, you know, you're going to have more brass, but you're going to have more percussion players than, it's just mm -hmm. crazy. The size, how out of control, really, in my opinion, completely out of control that got. And, you know, some, some composers kept right on with that, like Rachmaninoff's orchestras tended to be really big. Oh, I almost chose a Rachmaninoff tune for this very episode, Symphonic Dances, which if, if, you know, listener, you are familiar with that tune, you'll know why I would have wanted to put that on there. But that's a big orchestra too, you know. So I just think this was a really fun time in classical music when Prokofiev was doing this. Adorino Respighi, an Italian composer, was also really into um, experimenting with quote-unquote old, out-of-date, you know, passe forms and just making really great music with it. Sometimes even with Respighi, he would like literally take themes from Rameau. So are we able to listen to the Gavot? Oh, yeah. Because I think... It'll yeah. also tie in well with the Valdigay and the B-side. And I, it just sounds so fresh and new yeah. yet old. Yeah. I, I just, I love it. Yeah, no, it's wonderful. Yeah. All right, so this is the Gavotte from 
Which, by the way, if anybody out there is a screen printer and wants to make me a shirt that says, I heart Gavot, <laughs> instead of I heart NYC, yeah, yeah. you're welcome to do so. Amazing. I might trade you for a bottle of Valdegay. You hear how stately this dance is, right? Mm -hmm. But yet how goofy he's making it with his harmony. So it's like almost a parody, but not. Walt Disney were alive. Yes. He'd be like, could you please do a coyote skit with this? Thanks for playing that. I love it. Oh, it's it's great. It's great. It's all so wonderful. And the instrumentation is great. The um you know, there a lot of times people don't know what to listen for when you're saying listen to the clarinet or listen for the oboe or something and pieces like this are really fun to learn that because they all get their little tiny solos and you can say, "Oh, that's a really great little clarinet spot" or mm -hmm. listen to the trombones or Check out the timpani or, you know? Yeah. I don't know, because he kind of passes it around and spreads the love with the orchestra, which is really great. I just, I don't know. I love that symphony so much. It's a special little piece, you know? And, I mean, he, he wrote several symphonies, and they get pretty wild, you know? Like, they get Russianer, <laughs> <laughs> Heavier, darker. But, I mean, but... Prokofiev and were they later on in his life? Obviously, because that's Symphony Number no. One. Yeah. So were they? Yeah, he was a pretty young fella when he wrote this one, and um, he was yeah, another shy guy of, shy of thirty. Yeah, right? when, just like I think when you were saying the dates, I think I figured he was. Yeah, like 20, yeah, because it was sixteen, 20s. seventeen that he wrote it. Yeah, he he was another one who went to conservatory really young, and annoyed all his classmates because he was the young kid. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, he had a little bit of a. I mean, I don't know how you could go through that experience and come out normal, to be honest. Like, it's just, that would be a hard thing to do, to go so young and be around all these jaded yeah. pianists and, and whatnot. But he was also a really great piano player, and that's one of the things that, like, Stravinsky was a pianist as well, but Stravinsky was a very world-famous composer, and Prokofiev was more, at the time, like a world-famous concert pianist. So he was just a sick pianist, and so that's how he made a lot of his money touring and stuff was as a soloist. It sounds like when I listened to the Gavot, the the thing I thought of to to to, to just you know Velcro it onto wine was is how you know I think you hit the nail on the head when you're like listen how you know it's serious and it's of its style, but mm -hmm. yet it, there's slight parody to it. Yeah, and I think 
this grape and especially this wine, this winemaker, I think wouldn't take offense to this if I'm, if I say, you know, it's probably one of the most serious Valdigues out there, which is why I brought it. Yeah. But Valdigue can never really help but make a parody of itself, sort of, just like don't take me too seriously. Yeah. Um, and I love that when we, when we talked about B-sides for quite similar reasons mm -hmm. that these ended up. I guess whether this is the end of the conversation in a few uh, minutes or hour or whatever, or I like that this moment came yeah. to be with Prokofiev and Valdier because I think mm -hmm. I can't imagine it having happened with a different composer and a different symphony. Yeah. I'll just say it. Yeah. No, I... Do you think that Valdier is, you know, more B-side or what, because it's just so fruity and easy to drink? No, I think it's just because people, for the longest time, it wasn't sold on its own. It was in a blend. Okay. And yeah. then I think when it was sold on its own as Napa Gamay, people mm -hmm. thought it was Gamay, Gamay. or a mutation yeah. of Gamay. Um, and so, no, I think it's a B-side because even now when people see it, you know, I I don't want to put everybody in the same camp, but most people aren't shopping for Valdier, which is... Yep why it's a good B-side. Yeah. I think it's delicious. I love, I totally love the grapiness. I just, I love that. I love the aftertaste too. And I thought about trying to find another, like a French B-side, like yeah. an actual, because technically this is French, right? But right. that's that's grown in France that we could taste mm -hmm. from there. I didn't want to pick a wine that was just a curiosity. Yeah. And I felt like this is just a really prime example of right now what's going on in California in and of itself and it's sort of permeating other boundaries like now there's really cool and great quality white Zinfandel out there you know some people are making rosé out of Zinfandel and people are making light and bright and juicy jammy fun Cabernets you know and so yeah. this is and it's one would argue that this helped get mm -hmm. it there which mm -hmm. is fun Jill Mott, it was a pleasure. Emily Reese, right back at you. Cheers. Cheers. To B-Sides. Thank you for listening to episode two of Scores and Pours with Jill Mott and Emily Reese. You can find links and information about this episode at patreon.com slash scoresandpours. We're on Instagram at Scores and Pours, all one word. Edited by Emily Reese and Jill Mott. Our producer is Sam Keenan. And I'm Paul Beach. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media Incorporated.